welcome to episode 10 of Dano Says So, and it's turning out to be Dano Says So season one, and I decided who do I want to talk to the last in the first dozen interviews. Um, I have at least a dozen people still lined up, and it was like, if I'm going to wrap up season one with the person of my choice, it's going to be Billy Rubin, because it's always a good time talking to Billy. He is one of my oldest friends, and we probably have the most mileage together out of anybody I talked to this season. Um, to the unanointed, Billy Rubin was the vocalist to Half Off and Haywire. He was also, in the end, the proprietor of New Beginnings Records. He was also all kinds of things that are a big deal in Southern California. You know, he was a he was a Zen Records employee. He was, you know, around for the height of the gang culture at Fenders. You know, all sorts of different wildness that is part of the legendary of Southern California. Billy was front and center. So, uh, Billy, thank you for doing this. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so I think the people who know both of us, a lot of the early perception was that there was almost a big brother, little, little brother vibe, vibe between you and I, I'm two years older than you. Yeah. Right? Well, I think that's fair. Right. But what I've thought about as we've gotten older is it's not that I was shy, but if I had self-confidence, it was in a different way. But out of the two of us, when we were younger, the one who was always bringing the interesting or meaningful personalities into the mix or who was doing things that then took us to exotic places or crazy towns and into situations was you. Where did that come from? I don't know. I think that, um, I think I was just kind of a sponge and wanted to get as much exposure to not, not exposing myself for, you know, like in these days, like, you know, networking purposes, but I was authentically interested in all of these different people that we were, you know, it was fascinating to me that we could meet all these people as just being little kids. And, you know, that was, right. that was fun. I mean, this is what it was, this is what it was like in the eighties. If you were friends with Billy Rubin, if you're Dan, you read maximum rock and roll. If you're Billy, you're like, Hey Dan, let's go to maximum rock and roll next weekend. You right. know, and you drive 400 miles and you sleep in their basement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's funny how many people, Martin Sprouse, uh, with Pete Kramiak, with a lot of different people, your name has come up over the course of this thing. Um, yeah, Mar the, the Martin interview uh, that you did really made me smile because uh, I, and the way I met Martin, and I was a 15-year-old kid, and I went to a show in San Diego with strangers, and Martin walked up to me with a bag of chocolate chip cookies and asked me if I wanted one, and I thought, this guy's trying to poison me, for sure. <laughs> It turned out it was Martin Sprouse. I had no idea how, how bad my judgment on that one was. Right. Well, Martin remembers it clearly. I was I could not picture it, and I know why, because I wasn't there. I remember that shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, one of the first tri road trips that you and I ever took, and one that ended up having lasting implications for you because it led to your record label, was this 85 or 86 trip. It almost has to be 85 trip that we made to Maximum Rock and Roll. And if I remember right, some of the pretext of that trip was that we were going to meet Mike Trushan and Bessie Oakley and sort of the forming nucleus of New Beginnings rec Records. How did you even know them? Yeah, so um, I, met, uh, I met Bessie when I did an interview of Youth of Today in mm -hmm. their tour van when Kevin Seconds was playing drums for them. That Fender show? That no, night or? No, this was up at, it was at some place up in like, um, 
I don't know, like West Covina. wasn't It was further west than Pomona, but it was way up north, you know, inland like that. I don't think I ever went to a show there ever again. But, okay. But it was, it was, you know, Youth of Today was really just doing, I would call it like a little boutique type tour. And mm-hmm. Kevin was their drummer. And I remember, I remember, I remember clearly. Yeah, we got word of it. So, so we went and I was interviewing them in their, in whoever's tour van it was. And there was this, this woman, Bessie, that was there. And we just sort of became pen pals after that. And that's, so she was going to be, um, she was going to be, going to college in New York and she needed someone to drive out there with. And so I, I volunteered to do the drive with her. And that, but that's, that's after the trip North. So did you know that before? That was, was, yeah, that was uh, before the trip North and that's why. So I, I, uh, Senility is a bitch, man. <laughs> you, you, you were always down for something like that. And so I needed a way to get up to San Francisco to meet with her there, which would right. then in turn get me a ride to her house in Reno because she was mm-hmm. going to be in San Francisco too. And from the mm-hmm. Martin interview, what I think I've learned is that she was in San Francisco to have that meeting about maybe. Yeah, I didn't know anything about that either. Yeah, me neither. I, mean, I knew that all that stuff was happening at the time, but I didn't realize Bessie was a part of that and you know, that all that was going on. Do you remember that during all that craziness, we went and, so we went and met Bushead? Yeah, yeah, I do. Do, that, do you remember, was, I'm trying to decide whether this is a responsible thing to do or not. Do you remember what he said about Martin? No, I don't. I've watched a promising architect turn into a useless hippie. <laughs> I do remember that. I do. I do remember that. In fact, when Martin was talking about, uh, you know, what his education or his background was, I was thinking, God, when, when is architecture going to come into this? Right. And, and it didn't. I was like, where do I know that Martin was an architect? Right? Yeah. I think that it didn't occur to me even while I was doing that interview until his furniture creation came up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's uh, skip to something I was... There's two things that I don't want to have happen in these, but they end up happening anyway, and that's all right because the nature of our connections are the nature of our connections. But most of these interviews turn into to at least a mild Trump bashing session. Oh, yeah. But the other thing that's always possible in interviews between older hardcore personalities is that old feuds can come up or, or there can be shit talking. That's not necessarily what I'm inviting here, but at the same time, I want reality. You met Ray on that, 80, on that 85 road trip with Bessie. Yeah, I met him more significantly. He spent more real time with him. Yeah, I, I did. You know, so I, I, that, I that, that ended up, like it or not, for both of us, that ended up being a fairly important piece of networking. Yeah, yeah. I was I was out there on the East Coast with that group of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this would have even been before uh, Craig was in Youth of Today, right? Uh, and you know, I, I I just I was out there with them. Came home with Albany style stickers, all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, yo, yeah, yeah. I was. I saw uh, Dag Nasty with Sean Brown, I think. Yeah, and I saw I saw Underdog play with mm-hmm. you know in, in Albany and um, anyway. So yeah, I I just came back with you know I had a chance to have a greater exposure to that group mm-hmm. of people, and and I just kind of realized that they weren't you know I I want to have people around me that inspire me mm-hmm. and. They, their brand of thinking related to hardcore, just, mm-hmm. it just, it wasn't my thing. It wasn't, right. 
you know, it, it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna take me to the next level that I wanted to go to as far as the way that I saw a movement going. And as yeah. time went on, and that became the guiding light of that movement, mm -hmm. I, I just realized I wanted nothing to do with it. Absolutely well, nothing to do with it. There was, you know, I ended up closer to the nucleus of that whole thing than you, than you did, just through the strange evolution of events and, you know, the opportunity to put out my first record. Um, you and I have both always kind of been antagonists and sort of uh, contrarians for contrarians' sake, but in two very different ways. Much more, you're much more, you know, you will come right out with it and say, fuck these people, and I will dye my hair black and wear all black and wait for them to call me, call me a, you know, call me a warlock. And yeah, I, I, I come out and say, fuck these people is a, is a test balloon. And right. once I see that it flies and no one can shoot any holes in it, then I just get really sarcastic and I make really bad jokes right. about it all. But, but I think in, in all honesty, it was an exciting time probably more so for me than for you when I, when I was involved with all those people. What's more interesting to me about it and how it evolved between, say, the three of us and the two of us in that group is the almost religious role it plays in a lot of people's lives now, 30, 30 years after the fact. And my feelings on it are kind of complicated. I'm, I'm, it's very easy for me to put together language, you know, calling reunions cash grabs and everything else. But then at the end of the day, there's really not that much money in it and i some somehow wonder if just maybe the aging process and personal identity doesn't play a bigger role you know does cashing in have to be about money can it also be about the other positive maybe positive feelings it gives someone and you know if whether it's for money or it's for those positive feelings if it is some sort of attempt to get what a person needs whether it's mm -hmm. financial or emotional then if we're going to admit that in present day, then do we have to retrospectively go back and admit that that's what it was back then too? And if we do that and say that that group of people, that that's what they were about back then was making themselves feel important, then all of a sudden don't we have to take a different perspective on what straight edge was to that group of people and all the rage and angst and all the stuff that people, you know, were so sincere about? Is it maybe not as sincere as we thought it was? I, I don't know. Well there's a zero percent there's a zero percent chance that a lot of what you just said is true or that all of what you just said is true for a large number of people. I don't think it can be absolute. You know, I've met, you know, I meet, I meet exceptions to every rule in this. You know, the interesting thing for me, like, you know, you don't really, you don't do music anymore, but you're still in touch with so many music people, is I got to a point where everything was falling apart. And, but I needed to sing. I wanted to sing. And I knew I could still set up a situation where I could sing. I had real guilt doing that without, bringing a game plan for saving the world to the stage. Now, on the one hand, you could say, okay, well, then you're true to your values, but what I think is gnarlier, and the reason I'm saying this in response to what you said, is that's some pretty fucking narcissistic thinking. That, you know, <laughs> if I'm going to speak in front of people, I'd better be there to be a leader, you know, and a, and a guide and an ascendant character, which, as I get older, I realize is, particularly for a person who's screwed up as much as I have, is horseshit. Well, I don't know. I think it's important that someone is that someone has the drive to be that person and do those mm -hmm. things for, for me, the, the end of the road for me 
it, it was sort of multifaceted, but I, I remember very distinctly someone, you know, one of those situations where you're on stage, you're performing, and in between songs, someone like grabs your leg or something and wants to tell you something. Mm -hmm. And it was a, a woman in attendance wanting, saying, play shoot guns eat pussy. And, <laughs> I, and, and she, she, didn't, she didn't realize that it was sarcasm, that it was right. stupid. And I, I was like, I, I just, I can't do this anymore. Like, I, mean, I It came from you and I's bald-faced amusement and shock with a few lines from one of the first few Rollins books, right? Exactly. That's exactly yeah. right. That's where, that's where it came from. And, you know, that just, just the way the whole thing, you know, and, and also there was an admission on my part that I really just felt like my contribution wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't making a meaningful contribution and I didn't feel like, uh, I didn't feel like I had any particular talent. I, I really felt like my talent was more for putting things together than it was for authoring things. And I, I just, I, I felt like for me to find my own happiness in life, I had to find a way to, the effort that I was going to put into any of these projects, mm -hmm. I felt like there had to be another avenue where I could put in that same effort and get paid accordingly. Right. So Interesting. That's, yeah, that's, that's where it went for me. I, I just kind of put all the dollar signs together and went, if I get to the peak of this industry, mm -hmm. the, the, what I'm going to make doing this is just not going to, I'm going to do just as much work. I may as well do something that's a little bit more stimulating and satisfying for me. It's interesting because I've never, you know, I don't know to what degree we are, our parents, but my mother was terrible with money. She's a brilliant woman, but she was terrible with money. And when she got older and she put herself through law school and record time and, you know, she graduated and became an attorney the same month I graduated high school. Okay. But what did she do? She started playing the horses and playing cards, yeah. you know, and I'm very similar. And as I get older, you know, I, I talk to a lot of guys, you know, you, uh, I really experienced talking to Pete and stuff where you had the presence of mind as young men to realize that that's a real part of life. You know, I'm 52 years old and I live in a one bedroom apartment with a cat. It's a very cool one-bedroom apartment, you know, and I don't mind the cat's company. It's not the easiest thing to sell to a 52-year-old woman. You know? Right. And, and my parents were um, always by the seat of their pants, always you know, living beyond their means and on the verge of disaster. Mm -hmm. And it's not that it necessarily scared me. I just thought that, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. And... I, I just wanted to, um, I, I don't know, I, I don't want to come across as too materialistic, but I, I just felt that, I felt that having, um, having more control over the financial aspect of my life would give me more options, right. and that I wanted to have those options available to me. Well, it's an, it's an unintended segue to something you and I both agreed, you know, you'd be all right with me discussing later, because... Uh, your correct title, Managing Director of Investments. Yeah. And for a company that is no joke, for a sizable financial entity, um, has got to be, I mean, I actually want to ask, I shouldn't say I know what it's got to be. I perceive that as being a hell of a space or a hell of a field to be in while the economy is absolutely on fire. And to my perceptions, to my limited understandings of how money works, it's a, it's a year that's going to get even worse going forward. I mean, do are, are economic straits to your perception as dire as I perceive them right now? Yeah. So uh, there's there's a huge separation between Wall Street and Main Street, you know. And I think I'm, I'm speaking at a you know 
kind of the evening news kind of level here. And which can, my understanding goes no deeper than that. So run with it. Well, I mean, we, we can go much deeper, but, you know, at some point in time, and, and I don't want to profess to be something that I'm not, I'm not, um, you know, I, I'm not the master of, of everything. But I think that for me, I've been doing this now for 26 years. Right. And um, when you reach a certain point, you look at all of this stuff, maybe the same way that Neo in the Matrix looked at things when he could see the, you know, the eyes and the O's yeah. and all that and um are the ones in the o's and um i i i look at all this and um i mean to still just not go too crazy what what's propelling all of this along right now is the fact that there's government stimulus globally you know not mm-hmm. just this country but mm-hmm. and i'm not talking about the checks that the government is cutting the people or the unemployment checks or the loans that are being given to companies it's more of the quantitative easing and the purchasing in the open markets of securities and mm-hmm. globally. And that effect makes everything else irrelevant. It makes it completely irrelevant. So don't, don't shoot the messenger, but people can be losing their jobs and losing their homes and, you know, having all this terrible stuff. And I'm sorry to say it, but it just doesn't matter to the the larger financial engines will keep rolling and 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 i hate to say this as well but it's just it's necessary now the element of that that is really i think is really interesting is that if you know you're talking to a person that is a hardcore republican blah 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 they might not want to admit it but everything i just described is socialism it's financial socialism and for how opposed to socialism so many of these people are it's a bitter pill for them to swallow so anyway that'll run with it's at best, most people's understanding of what socialism even is, is at best like a high school, at a high school sophomore level, but often not even that. It's just a knee-jerk reaction to a vocabulary word they were thought was not. Right. They, they think that socialism is communism and that um, someone's coming for their guns and their toilet paper. Yes. Which, you know, I could use the toilet paper sometimes, don't need the guns. You know. <laughs> um, it's... On a, on a citizen by citizen level, at the, at, at the, the normal level of the everyday grocery store consumer, do you think I'm right in predicting that the conditions will get even worse? No, I, so I nobody's don't. Make, I, nobody's nobody's making at the paycheck at the paycheck to paycheck level. I'm a salaried employee, but I have very few. You know, none of my employees are. You know, um, nobody's making any money, and I had a staff of seventy six. Only twenty four of them are working right now. Yeah, it's really unfortunate. I think that the effort or the attempt is to preserve the infrastructure so that when the virus is in the past or if the virus is in the past, that that infrastructure will be there to so that the ramp up of rehiring people and rebuilding and getting back to where we were um, or somewhere even better potentially, that that infrastructure is still there. That's, that's what I think is trying to be preserved. That if that you slipped in there is a scary question, but I think it's very real. I think the containment, I think the containment is a lot more likely than elimination. It's hard to say. You know, I, I, there are certain things I'll claim to be an expert on and then other things I'll just openly admit. Yeah, I, I I don't know. Did you ever know, did you ever know, you kind of knew the San Francisco people. There was a, 
woman very involved in the East Bay hardcore scene up in Oakland named Alexia. Did you know her? No. Well, Alexia is an epidemiologist um, specializing in infectious diseases. Interesting. And did so at the level of state departments of public health for 19 years. Wow. And she's going to give me an interview on here, and I'm terrified of what I'm going to hear. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. Right. It could be like uh, could be like an episode of The Walking Dead. I could come off with never wanting to do another interview. Right. So it's funny because you've got blank walls all behind you, and you've got all kinds of interesting angles and shadows. Uh, but you did not step away entirely from your own personal creativity. People marvel at your photography. When did that start? Uh, I guess it started maybe seven years ago. I is probably about. I, okay. I mean, I was always into it from you know from when we used to go to shows and you know learning how right. to take just so that we'd have pictures of the bands that we interviewed for mm -hmm. our scene. Um, but then the landscape photography thing came into play. I, I used to go on these vacations to these really cool places and there was nothing to do. It was, it was. These kinda, really cool places where I was bored out of my mind. Well, you know, you can only go to so many museums or go shopping or go to a nice meal or whatever before you realize that you're, there, there has to be more. There, there's got to be more to that place. And the only way to get to that more is, for, for me anyway, is to go down the dirt road until it ends and then try to go a little bit further. And then when the car gets stuck in the mud or the sand or whatever, to put on a backpack and hike as far as you can hike before you run out of water. That's incredibly well framed. I think you probably just birthed 10 wilderness photographers in the hardcore scene right there. Well, <laughs> to get to that final location, then you probably have to sleep on the rocks and spend the night because you have to wait for the good light. And then when it happens and everything looks absolutely beautiful, there's really just nothing else like that. And um, for, for me, if that place that I do that in is also a place where I don't speak the language and I have trouble finding food, and the more challenging it is, the more rewarding it is. And that's, that's what I, I enjoy. And that to me is so much more rewarding than saying that, you know, I went to London and I went to the British Museum or whatever. And, and believe me, I, I love all those mm -hmm. things too. But, you know, I want to go to London and when I get off the plane, I'll hit the British Museum. But then the next day I want to catch another flight to Iceland and, you know, and right. You know, get a get a blowout on on you know on an icy road somewhere and figure out how to get myself out of that situation. That's pretty impressive, Bill. That uh, that's probably the one time in seven hundred years I've ever called you Bill. So that's pretty impressive, oh. Billy. Um, <laughs> the uh, there's a thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is much more sweeping back to casual and just kind of lighthearted conversation about our long paths in punk rock. Two things. Uh, first off, I know a few people have said it to you, but do you find when you run across faces from the old days, people are now telling you you were right all along with some of the shit that you started or with just some of the sort of contrarian nature that you carried yourself with? I've heard people yeah, say there, it. There have been a couple instances there. Um, there you know, I, I don't want to uh, I, I don't want to embarrass anyone, I guess is the, the way I'd put it. But mm -hmm. uh, there, there was a person from Orange County that at one point in time, like, you know, back in the day, it confronted me about um, me not being, um, you know, I, I wasn't being a team player to the to the movement, so to speak. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And that person in our adult lives came came to me and said, uh, you know, uh, that they were basically they were a fool and that you know, it, 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 look, I I knew way back then that that I was right, and that's all that's all that I needed for me. I you know, but I I'm glad I'm glad that everything turned out the way it did. As I get older, I'm more forgiving of the fact that everybody lear learns learns human nature, learns the depth of the impact of their own behavior at a different pace. You know what I mean? And yeah. I, I have a hard time holding a lot of grudges from the distant past. People think I do because, you know, friends like you included, I come from very outspoken stock. You know, so I, I tend to still be, I tend to still call bullshit bullshit. But I harbor a lot less resentment, a lot less anger towards people we shared space with than I ever have. Yeah, it's corrosive to the container that carries it. Yeah, uh, well put. Thank you. So that said, and I feel like we've rushed towards the end, but all of it's been golden, and I'm not wrapping it up right here. But I say, you know, we talked about, we both still, I think, relatively constantly, or at least several times a year, see faces from back in the day. Are you like me? I marvel at the notion we're seeing people we've known twice as long as what our age was back then. You yeah. know, when you see somebody you met when you were a 16 year old punk rocker 32 years, 32 years later, the math is kind of inconceivable. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, you know, uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed is dropping in on people, mm -hmm. right. people like their bands coming through Arizona or something and they have, yeah. you know, they might not even know that I live in Arizona, and uh, they're they're playing at some you know some bar or something, and I'll I'll just show up and see right. the place when you know they're they're you know selling T-shirts or whatever, and I come and tap them on the shoulder, and they're like, "What the fuck?" Right. That's, that's a lot of fun. I mean, I think it we hard pressed no matter how much a rebel against the rebels either one of us have ever been, and I think that's a tag we're each hung with in a different way, but. You, it's a, it's a huge part of, God, what do they call them now, brands? I still think, I think what I'm getting at here, it's really kind of impossible to view the years we were offered in this music as anything but a net positive, as a net gain. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Without, I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I grew up in punk rock. It convinced me that there was, that, you know, there's absolutely nothing that I can't do or anyone else can't do if they if they put their mind to it for you know for how much lip service that sounds like and people say that sort of thing all the time. I mean it's it's true. You know, we, we can do whatever we want and so we just, just have we to have both it. we both went fanzine kid, singer, label owner. So I'm not gonna argue with you. I'll tell you I'll tell you a story. There's a guy named Ryan Langley here in Southern California. We both kind of sniffed around progressive journalism probably about 10 years ago, right? And we went and we interviewed this guy, and he was a dissident, a dissident journalist. He used to sneak money to dissident writers in Cuba, taped to him. I'd go down there with, you know, tens of thousands of dollars taped to his body and, give, and use it to pay and subsidize writers down there. Wow. But he was talking to us, and he was freaked out at our level of organization, and I, I put together a speaking thing in Orange Coast College and did this and that and the other thing. And we were when we left, Ryan was was kind of like, we were sort of reflecting on the fact that how is someone like that impressed with us? And I said, people who don't come from a punk rock background don't understand that when you want to take over the world, you just take over the world. That's right. That's right. You know? yep. which, which is an attitude I should probably infuse some into the current day, although 
Maybe I'm taking over the puzzle. You just have to print flyers and put them out at Zed, and it'll all turn out okay. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I, I will tell you right now, the podcast thing, it was intended as Zoom only and YouTube only to distract me from quarantine and the fact that I don't have access to my band. And now it's something after this interview I want to take a few weeks off from, get serious about, learn more, and come back with, 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 with the guns all in a row. So I think that, great. You know, several people have told you you're a natural for it, and I, I, I agree with them. I, I think you are, and I, I, find the, I find the podcast totally informative and entertaining. They're great. You know what? I, I, I sit here as I stammer and as I hang on, uh, I was going to say I understand that I have the gift of gab, but you know what? what? What I do have is a tin ear, because, like for instance, with Vic Bondi, right? I was terrified that he was losing people when he immediately just started quoting scholars and, and academic texts from the get-go, and it's one of people's favorite episodes. So who knows? Maybe because we're all older people now, I'm underestimating people's appetite for the intellectual. Yeah, and we we all did come from that same place where it wasn't enough to go to the um, I don't know to go to the the high school football game. We wanted something a little bit more, and we obsessed over reading lyric sheets and trying to understand exactly what it meant. So you know, why would you know carried forward into the future? You know, yeah. I will kill you and cut it from the interview if you were to mention any of it. But one thing that I was thinking about, just to <laughs> be very vague. Like was, some of the things we used to say to Mike Murphy and some of the ways we used to behave and some of the ways we used to wrestle around and stuff, it came up when I was talking to Kevin Seconds. Punk rock when we were kids and the things we would do to shock people or even just to feel punk rock would be devastating to careers, to social standings, to social credibility now. If I, if I were going to have kids, I would be so happy they're being born now, not then. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel bad for the kids these days and what social media can do to them. Yeah, but uh, I like the high bar. I like the high social standard. You know? Good point. Well, listen, Billy, contrary to what I think some people's perception was, most of the years that they've known the two of us, you've been a huge influence on my life, and I'm grateful for you. Oh, thanks, Dan. I feel the same way about you. Well, this was fun to do. It was shorter than I expected, but I'm getting out of it right now because I was really satisfied. So, people, episode 10 and Billy Rubin, thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. Take care, Dan. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs. But what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500. As each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.